When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Heather Clark, whose recent biography, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, is now out in paperback. I really wanted to try to rewrite that script. I did not want her name to be synonymous with madness and tragedy. I wanted her name to be synonymous with an amazingly prolific, ambitious, talented, professional writer. Heather earned her bachelor's degree in English literature from Harvard University and her doctorate in English from Oxford University. Her awards include a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Fellowship, a Leon Levy Biography Fellowship at the City University of New York, and a visiting U.S. Fellowship at the Eccles Center for American Studies, British Library. A former visiting scholar at the Oxford Center for Life Writing, she is also the author of The Grief of Influence, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and The Ulster Renaissance, Poetry in Belfast, 1962-1972. Her work has appeared in publications including Harvard Review, Times Literary Supplement, Time, Airmail, and Lit Hub, and she recently served as the scholarly consultant for the BBC documentary Sylvia Plath, Life Inside the Bell Jar. She divides her time between Chappaqua, New York, and Yorkshire, England, where she is a professor of contemporary poetry at the University of Huddersfield. A very simple question that I had in my head was, how did Sylvia Plath become the writer that she became? And that was just the question that guided the whole book, really. Red Comet is a defiantly large work, an exhaustive study of the life of a poet who is often reduced to the terms of her death. We talk here about how Heather sought to add context to that shorthand version of Plath, which pathologizes and fetishizes her because of her suicide at the age of 30. Heather says she wanted to write about the life of an artist, and what is abundantly clear in Red Comet is that Plath was a serious artist and a serious craftsperson her entire life. Reaching back into Plath's juvenilia, including unpublished stories and poems from her youth, Heather crafts a portrait of a fiercely talented and driven artist. I came to Red Comet not because of a deep appreciation of Plath, though I left with that, Rather, I picked it up because I have an omnivorous appetite for biographies of women artists. And that, emphatically, is what Heather has written. Immediately, I was confronted with assumptions I hadn't realized I had formed about Sylvia Plath. That she was frivolous and unserious, full of histrionics, a phase for girls who tended toward the maudlin. This internalized misogyny is by no means uncommon in literature, but it dogged me more the more that I read Plath's work, which, no big revelation from me here, is often exquisite and precise. Heather offers an intimate look at Platt's commitment to and passion for her art, as well as the contradictions and complications that made her the artist and the person that she was. Here, we talk about the years-long work of such a massive project, permissions, archives, organizing research, and about charting Platt's growth as a person and a creative. At WMFA's Patreon page, we talk about making writing joyful and how the joy that Heather found in the process of Red Comet informed the book's flow. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month.
one of the things that I wanted to start with was I picked up this book not necessarily out of a kind of pre-existing interest in Sylvia Plath, but just because I really love reading biographies of creative women. And I was really fascinated with like how kind of deeply I fell for her, which I think is really a testament to your writing, but also to the point that you're trying to make with the book, you know, what you talk about in the prologue that she has kind of been reduced in this way, um, kind of whether it's reduced to her suicide or reduced to, you know, some kind of sort of, you know, girlish sort of um, attitude, like things like the bell jar, um, that we kind of don't take her seriously as as an artist and as a writer. And, um, and then I was really fascinated to find when I listened to your interview on the Slate podcast working, um, that you hadn't particularly been interested in her either when you found her. Um, so I would love to start by just talking about how, how you came to her and kind of what motivated, you know, I know such a long course of, um, a, such a long project doesn't necessarily, you know, if we knew how long these things would take from the outset, we probably wouldn't start. But but what yes. what what kind of was the abide like what kept you coming back to her, do you think? Yeah, it's it's so true that if if we had <laughs> if we had known, right, when we start out on these huge projects, I don't <laughs> I mean, you have to start out with a bit of naivete, I think. Um and and profound and bottomless optimism. Uh, because that that's what is going to see you through writing a 500 page biography or an 1100 an 1100 page biography i was going to say <laughs> um, but yeah i started i started becoming interested in sylvia plath in graduate school i was getting a phd and i was writing about northern irish poets in belfast in the 70s which is you know <laughs> a far cry from sylvia plath right but um, but through the work of these Northern Irish poets, I actually came uh, to know of Ted Hughes's work on a much more sophisticated level because uh, the Irish poet Seamus Heaney was best friends with Ted Hughes. So I came to Sylvia Plath sort of through this back door of male Northern Irish poets. <laughs> and the more I started... Um, reading about Plath and Hughes and their marriage, I just I became very interested in their literary relationship and just the fact that these two, you know, two of the greatest poets of the post-war generation were married to each other. And, you know, I, I was so interested intellectually about that, like that question, what did it mean for their poetry and what did that mean for Anglo-American poetry in general? Uh, so... When I was in graduate school, I was asked to teach some tutorials on Sylvia Plath, and that solidified my interest because I, I overprepared for these classes because I felt like I, I didn't know enough about Sylvia Plath. And I, and I actually felt like I had sort of fallen for this, this myth of Plath as, you know, the, all the doom and gloom and um, the, the focus on the suicide and the mental illness and the depression and once I started reading her poetry um, seriously and from a, a kind of more removed <laughs> angle, I just, I felt like I'd been sold a bill of goods in, in America. I mean, I was teaching her poetry in England and I felt like the English attitude was very different to Plath there. there. There just wasn't the same focus on the pathology 
and and the life story in a sense. And I just felt like in England, where I was in graduate school, there was there was just more respect for her as a poet. I, in the back of my mind, for for many years, I had been toying with the idea of writing a Plath biography because I I didn't think that any of the existing ones were satisfactory. Um, and there there wasn't a big biography of Plath, you know, um, in in the way that we have the big biography of Virginia Woolf by Hermione Lee. And I just felt like there was room for <laughs> the big biography. And also I knew there was a lot of new material um, that was going to be open to the public soon or published soon. Or I mean, there were just reams of new letters and there were new archives. And so it just seemed like the right time, you know, and 50 years had gone by since her death. Uh, about about 50 years, give or take, when I wrote up my proposal. So it just, the whole story was sort of less raw and the permission situation was a little bit easier to navigate. So all of these, all of these things, um, <laughs> I considered all of them and I decided to go for it. So that's sort of the long, the long complicated answer to the, to your very, very simple question. So sorry about the rambling. <laughs> no, we we love long, complicated answers here. There's, there's no problem with that. You know, I, I thought a lot while I was reading this and while I was getting ready to talk to you about um, that Claire Vey Watkins essay on pandering about how women writers kind of internalize like male, like white hetero male conceptions of literature and what is literary. And um, because I do, I do think that like without realizing it, I had kind of taken this posture toward her that like, it was kind of embarrassing to like Sylvia Plath. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to change. That that made me furious. This idea that, oh my God, how can one be embarrassed? She's one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. She's you know? astonishing. Yeah. Yes. And then yeah. like reading then reading yes. it in context. And then of course I went down the rabbit hole as we do and was just like, no, she's she's astonishing. Yeah. Um and I do, you know, I remember and I had forgotten all about this. I'm sure people say things like this too all the time when you have these conversations about writing this but I I my very first introduction to her was and I don't know how I came across Lady Lazarus but it like exploded my brain and this mm -hmm. was like when I was like you know 19 maybe and then I kind of knew about the bell jar but you know I I think that like this is a really important task that you've done for this for this reason that you know we the rest of of kind of literary America, like guys get to talk, you know, everybody gets Catcher in the Rye, everybody gets to have these sorts of male counterparts of this. But, but when it's women, it's, you know, and I, I want to talk much more, you know, as we go on about this idea of, of being confessional and this sort of like, um, auto, you know, well, not auto fiction in this case, but you know, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the arguments that we're still having about like, is it, do women authors have the capacity to invent things and, you know, have authorial yes. personas? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, cause we love to get into craft here. And um, I think that you are maybe the first biographer that I've talked to. So even when you talk about things like permissions, like, can you just, can you, for those of us who like are not as much deep in that world, like what, what was changing and, and how does that stuff work for you? How do you navigate that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you, you don't need permission from a literary estate to write a biography of that particular author, but it helps enormously because it, it helps to know from the get-go if you're going to have permission to quote the author's work, for example. If you're writing about a poet, 
you know, that's particularly important. You want to be able to quote the lines um, of their poetry. And of course, you want to quote from letters and manuscripts and unpublished drafts of stories and poems. Um, so for me, and I'm somebody who likes to quote a lot in, in my critical work, and especially in this biography of Plath, because I really wanted to center Plath's voice as much as I could. Previous Plath biographers have had a very difficult time getting permission to quote Plath, partly because uh, in the past, the Plath state was controlled by, uh, well, Ted Hughes, but Ted Hughes's sister, Olwyn, was sort of the gatekeeper. And as you write about here, they they were not fans of each other <laughs> by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. So that you know, Olwyn and Sylvia had a really complicated relationship, to say the least. And, um, and I think Olwyn felt like she was protecting Ted Hughes from feminists who were, um, and, you know, she, she felt they were out to destroy him. So it was just, it was kind of, it was, it was a mess. And it, and it was, there were a lot of emotions at stake. I think feminist biographers especially had a really hard time uh, with Olin. And uh, now the Plath estate has passed to Frida Hughes, the daughter of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Um, and Frida is the one who allowed all of her mother's letters, surviving letters, I should say, to be published in 2018. Mm -hmm. Including the letters to her psychiatrist, Exactly, right? yes. Yeah. Including the letters to her psychiatrist, which I think are the most vulnerable and honest letters that she, she ever wrote, really. Frida Hughes has been, I think, more proactive about you know, just getting this, the story out there and... and allowing us to <laughs> to read her mother's wonderful letters. And I don't think that was an easy thing for her to do. So I, I think she has a lot of courage. But just to, but I should backtrack and just say, you know, again, you don't need an estate's permission. You can go ahead and write a biography. Um, but sometimes publishers really want that permission up front from the estate so that they know they're not going to have any legal problems down the line. So it's really something you need to negotiate with your editor, um, with the publisher, with the estate. It's, it's complicated. It's something that, that novelists don't have to deal with, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about, I mean, that, that relationship and, and you, you know, the, what you alluded to just now that um, Ted Hughes did for so long and the Hughes family had this final authority over uh, what, what was available and, and, you know, did he edited the collection pretty like Ariel initially he edited a little a little maybe more tightly and not necessarily mm -hmm. perhaps the way that she had intended it. Yeah, yeah, that was and that was very controversial of course when he changed the order. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious how um you know how or even if it's important to you to kind of come down on a personal judgment for yourself as you're working on this like I, I assume that you need to feel that you understand what's happening, but like, do you, you know, do you feel like you've kind of made a decision? Like, do you have a mental, like, okay, well, I've decided Ted Hughes is like this, you know, is, is, is unfairly maligned or gets, you know, gets the criticism he deserves or doesn't get enough criticism. Like, do you, do you try to keep yourself away from making assessments like that? Or do you feel like it's kind of central to being able to tell the story? It's, you know, the, I tried to go where the evidence would would lead me in in that sense. I mean, I did start the book with a sense of anger and a sense of 
injustice, I think, on class behalf, that she had become almost this cliche of the hysterical woman writer. And I really wanted to try to rewrite that script. I did not want her name to be synonymous with madness and tragedy. I wanted her name to be synonymous with an amazingly prolific, ambitious, talented, professional writer. And I did have that kind of framework in mind, but when I started out, but the only other kind of decision that I made in terms of, I think in the kind of decision that you're, you're talking about in that way was, um, I really did not want to blame one particular person for Sylvia Plath's suicide. So even before I started this book, I just decided I wasn't going to do that. And which, you know, which doesn't mean that there were moments when I was really angry about what happened in their marriage and the way she was treated, especially at the end. I just could not put that on someone, whether it was Ted Hughes or Sylvia Plath's mother, Aurelia, who's often also been kind of blamed because I just think depression is more complicated than that. And, um, in that sense, I didn't quite want to go there. And I know, you know, other Plath scholars probably, you know, would and have, and <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a, it was a very complicated marriage and they were, they were both very, um, they were both very tempestuous, dramatic people as well. And, and kind of lived for poetry, you know, try to sacrifice their lives. Um, I don't mean, I don't mean in the, uh, literally sacrificed her life. I'm not talking about her suicide, but they, they kind of, they lived their lives in pursuit of their writing. I mean, that was just their number one priority was, was their writing and everything else could go to hell basically. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, I think, um, you know, what, what you're saying kind of as like the, the sort of biographers to earn like a task of the biographer makes perfect sense to me. And I think that like, you know, part of, I feel like part of why I enjoy reading biographies, this is maybe like too much insight into my own like emotional shortcomings, but like everything's happened, right? So like this life is over. And so there's a there's a sense, like some part of my anxious brain lets me relax with that information, like it's all taken care of or something. And I think, you know, you that probably also lends itself to this real desire to oversimplify and to be like okay well here's the story it's it's xyz and and you're you're what you're talking about is kind of reminding you know just as in you know a work of fiction can end in a very messy un unclear fashion like life let's let's not forget that life happens yeah. that way too yeah 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 exactly yeah there's a kind of that can be ambiguity still there are so many loose ends that you don't necessarily want to you can't wrap up in a biography I mean there's still so many things that I I don't know and I wish I knew and Sylvia Plath's novel is still somewhere out there <laughs> um, her last journal is still somewhere out there I mean and I mean the, the word definitive has gotten thrown around so many times um, with my biography which and I'm very flattered that people use that word to describe it, but there's no such thing as a definitive biography because there will always be new material. There will always be new questions. There will always be reframings. You know, this is just part of a dialogue that's going to extend. Right, right. <laughs> outward for years. 
taking that up, I don't want to um, keep us any further from talking about her as a as a professional serious writer. And and one of the first things that really blew my mind reading this, and I and I you know is evident from the get go is how. Um, Ambitious is a word that I think when we apply it to women is often very loaded. Um, but she was like, she, she didn't waver. Like she knew what she wanted to do and she set out to do it at, at such a young age that it's kind of, I mean, I, I was, it's a little, like, I was a little jealous of that. It's scary, it's scary. but it's also just like, oh my God, like <laughs> yeah. what can yeah. I have accomplished if I had gotten my shit together at, you yeah. know? Exactly. She's she's intimidating in that way. And you know, after after I read it, I listened to I listened to some recordings of her reading her poems, and I was just thinking, like, oh my god, this woman would have intimidated the hell out of me at like some you know at Let Smith or whatever. I would have been like, oh my god. <laughs> what about that interested you? You know, there's been or I've, a few reviews I've met of the book have have taken a point to specifically mention how much of the kind of juvenilia you get into, whether it's kind of that, the detail of her young life, but then also the work that she was writing at a young age, you quote and talk about really freely. What about that do you think kind of added to the story that you were telling? Well, the, the story that I wanted to tell about Sylvia Plath was um, in the question, the very simple question that I had in my head was, how did Sylvia Plath become the writer that she became? And that was just the question that guided the whole book, really. If you're going to answer that question in a thorough way, you need to look at her juvenilia because that's where it all starts. And I felt like so many of the previous biographies, um, this was an area they had really ignored, I mean, almost completely. And uh, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to tell more of the story and fill, kind of fill in more of the gaps and, and also drive home this point that you know, she did, she she had been writing poetry since she was five years old. You know, she published her first poem when she was eight. She <laughs> she started writing a novel called Stardust when she was nine. She was constantly writing. And story of Sylvia Plath becoming becoming a great writer was the story that I wanted to tell because I thought it was the story that she told about herself most compellingly in her own words, in her journals, and in her letters. Um, how do I become a great writer? What and, and and the challenges of that, the joys and the agonies, and and I just so anyway, the juvenilia was a big part of that story because it 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 let me kind of understand um, how I guess the sorts of themes she was interested in as a child and an adolescent. Um, that they they sort of foreshadowed for me a lot of her later poetic themes, uh, the kinds of things that you images and themes you see in her mature poems. So for me, it was like this archaeology <laughs> of of the manuscripts because I think that when she went to Smith, she started writing much more mannered poems that were then in style. But if you look at her juvenilia, you can see that that other Sylvia Plath was always there. And she was kind of waiting in the wings to, to reemerge um, once she got to Cambridge. And I, I mean, I'm simplifying things uh, quite a bit, but, but uh, it just gives us a sense that, that she was always writing poetry and always kind of determined not just to write it, but to publish it 
even even as a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, you know, she entered every single contest it was possible to enter. Um, she she sent out over 50 poems and short stories in high school and uh, before she got published in 17. And she put them all up in her wall on her wall and said, this is evidence that I'm a writer. You know, my rejections are the evidence of that. Like, she was pretty stoic about her rejections. For a writer who's often, you know, this cliche of, emotion or melodrama I mean she was just so stoic about her her rejections yeah she seemed to have you know and and I'm thinking too especially of when um she starts kind of she's she kind of puts herself in charge of Ted Hughes's publication yes she really has a sharp sense of the business of publishing and is very is not precious about it absolutely yeah I mean she was his secretary slash agent um I, I don't know if he ever would have become a famous poet if not for her. Right, right. Um, and he he sort of acknowledged that yeah. a few times as well. She made his career, I think, no doubt about it, sending his work off to various magazines, various contests. I mean, the reason The Hawk and the Rain was published in 1957 was because she sent it out to the contest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she was scouring the landscape for these opportunities for him. But what's sort of sad about it is that if she chose his manuscript over her own manuscript to send out to that contest. Yeah. And and then when he wins, she writes things in her journal like, Well, when my book wins a prize, we're we're going to go celebrate with champagne. And you know, she Yeah. <laughs> she's happy yeah. for him, but she's also she's a bit jealous. And uh, right. I don't know if jealous is the right word, but she's she's a bit sad for herself, I think. Right. I, I wonder if if you feel like you got a sense of, you know, she she is obviously the subject of a lot of kind of feminist takes, but like she still is a woman of the time that she was in. And I wonder how much you got the sense that she made peace with that or like really fought against it. Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, just this question of, to what extent she was a proto-feminist, right? Because she she died a week before The Feminine Mystique was published. Mm. One week. And so she missed out on everything that the women's movement had to offer. Um, and that's, I think, one of the, the tragedies of the, the timing of her death. Um, and, and you can argue that in some senses, she's not a, <laughs> a kind of feminist with a capital F in the way that we think of feminism in 2021. Like she, you know, she was very cruel about women who didn't have children. She could be cruel about women who had abortions. She uh, called her female professors at Newnham grotesques. (laughs) Right, um, right. You know, but on the other hand, and she, I still think of her as a a proto-feminist. I mean, even though she took on the bulk of the the housekeeping and the child rearing and she did that willingly and she did that excite you know she was excited to do that but I still think that she believed in equality of opportunity right for and that's the basic feminist principle and she was totally angered she was furious about the sexual double standard and that's all over her journals that men men could just go out and fulfill their lust and, and she couldn't you know right and and that just angered her so much and and also she just she was always putting herself out there um, just in, in terms, you never apologize for her ambition. Sometimes people people were just shocked by that and she could rub, rub people the wrong way um, and seem too self-involved and 
uh, because she was always writing, always determined to be published. But um, I mean, I think of that as kind of that that's feminist and just just writing, just taking the time for herself to write when she had a husband and two children. And she lived in a society that encouraged women to make themselves small, you know, didn't a society that completely dismissed female creative ambition and, you know, encouraged women to stay in the home. I'm talking 1950s America, right? And that just just the act of writing itself and right sending sending off poems to the New Yorker and that kind of thing. I think of that as almost like a feminist political act. Now she was not Adrian Rich, right? She was not she was not out there running political committees and I mean, but she died before a lot of that could happen. And um, and Adrian Rich in the 1950s was all was very similar to Plath. I mean, she she was married to a Harvard economist. She took on the bulk of the housekeeping and the children, and and then she said second wave feminism woke her up. Right? She had been sleepwalking, and that's that was what kind of propelled her into into this new life. And Plath never got that chance. And I do wonder if Plath would have had similar kind of quote-unquote awakening would she have kind of followed in rich's footsteps or not i just don't know but it's a question that i've i've had if she had lived longer to to see the fruits of the women's movement it's it's a really interesting question to think about and and i i i I tend to agree with you i think it is a feminist act to just kind of claim your space and and one of the things you know that i was so in awe um is, you know, she's writing this letter to her mother when she's working on the poems that will be Ariel. And she just says, these poems will make my name. Like she was just like, I'm going to be famous and this is how, and this is, and these are that good. Like not, I'm not, I don't want to say fame for fame's sake, but I was just like, if I had just bottled that, like just like, (laughs) that's, there's something just so, um, I mean, it's completely tragic on the one hand, you know, because you just think, God, what else could she have done? I kind of came to this just out of a an enjoyment of creative women biographies. And part of why is I think that it just like it's just more and more instruction on like, here's how you can carry yourself as a woman artist. And and I think that, you know, I for me, just like growing up, you know, that that was not modeled around me. And so I think like when I first in my 30s, when I first went to a, an artist residency was the first time I saw sort of middle aged artist women and just thought like, oh, this is what my future could look like. And so I kind of approach biographies always with that kind of question, like, how are they doing it? Um, and, and I just so I just I really admired that in her, even though, of course, like any quality, it can go to an extreme, it can be both bad and good. But just that that ability to take yourself seriously, when the whole world is telling you not to take yourself seriously. I mean, the fortitude of that is, is really like something to respect. Yeah. And that was almost the thing that surprised me the most writing this biography was just her strength. And, and her, um, yeah, just that unapologetic, these poems will make my name. And, um, and I kind of, that was <laughs> what I wanted, I wanted everyone to, to see that and just to understand how difficult it was for women at that time to, to break, you know, to break free, to break out of those gendered roles and kind of yeah, I mean, to take herself seriously as an artist uh, when when no one else would, and I think almost posthumously, right? We we didn't really take her take Sylvia Plath seriously 
as an artist. And, and that's what made me so angry because it was almost like this was happening all over again. Right, um, right. And, and that she, in, in my prologue, I quote Adley Stevenson. And he was the presidential um, candidate. He was a Democrat, and he gave the commencement speech at Smith in 1955, and he told all of these women that they should aspire to be, quote, humble housewives with a baby in one hand and a can opener in the other. I just, I was so astonished by that and that he was the liberal darling of his day and that, and that all of these women applauded. I mean, there were no boos, there were no, no protests. Yep. And that's what you're hearing at your graduation? That's the world that you're being catapulted into. What kind of amazing strength does it take to to get past that? To take yourself seriously as an artist. I mean, I'm just I have so much respect for her and as 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 an artist in that sense. Yeah. Just to elaborate on that, I'm just looking at this page of the prologue and um Stevenson also says, once they wrote poetry, now it's the laundry list. They had hoped to play their part in the crisis of the age, but what they do is wash diapers. And then you write, he hoped this view was not quote unquote too depressing, but concluded that quote, women never had it so good as you do. That's your graduation speech. And, and so what kind of a message does that send about the trajectory of the rest of your life? And the fact that Plath just, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure she applauded kind of faintly, but, but, but she was going to have it all. I mean, this is the thing about class feminism that I, this is also why I think of her as a proto-feminist, because she didn't actually sneer at, at that in a sense. She wanted the, the baby. She wanted to make the, the gourmet dinners. And so she did. She wanted it all before that became a feminist catchphrase. She did not subscribe to the idea that was very prevalent in the 1950s that women had to give up a career for a family, right? She just thought that was complete bullshit. <laughs> and, and to Ted Hughes's credit, he didn't believe yeah. that either. Yeah, he didn't believe that either. Yeah, no, he, he, he knew she was a genius. And I mean, you know, we could talk about the ways in which Ted Hughes was not a good husband, especially at the end. But in the beginning, in the beginning, in the first few years of their marriage, he really, um, I think he really supported her. And I think he knew she was, she maybe had more potential. Even. <laughs> he right, <did> right. <laughs> at a certain point. Um, right. But but he did. He took the baby in the morning for four or five hours a day. They switched. So he would watch the baby in the morning and she would um, do it in the afternoon and that sort of thing. It all kind of fell apart when they had um, their second child because I think, you know, it was just a lot of work and that writing dynamic was harder to sustain, you know, one, both of them each having their five hours a day because there was just more work to do. But in the beginning, um, I think it was, it was fairly idyllic for a few years. Can you talk a little bit about uh, just, you know, as you're doing the research, watching her kind of hone her voice and her style, um, that, that was also part of what I found so fascinating, looking at what she was writing from such a young age and then you know, I, I think it's really easy for us to uh, look at artists who come to have a very strong stylistic stamp as like, oh, this just emerged, like this is just who they are without even trying. But, and and I think that absolutely that it, it it's in there. Like I'm, I think it is maybe like a work of excavation, but but it, something was excavated. It feels like. Um, did you did you feel like you were watching a shift happen? You know, as you're looking at. Um, 
because as you said, she was prolific. She's put, I mean, she took her craft so seriously. And, and just as the years go, went on, like do, what jumped out at you kind of seeing her work change and, and maybe improve, I don't know, qualitative maybe isn't the right term for it, but, but, you know, seeing her work evolve. That it, it was fascinating for me. I mean, I, I had been well aware of the kind of standard line, <laughs> the standard critical line on Plath that, she had a poetic breakthrough in um, 1959 at Yado, right? That was when kind of aerial voice started to emerge from this chrysalis. And, a, and, and I think there is some truth to that. But again, going back to the juvenilia, you see so many images that she goes back to in her aerial poems. And it's, it's quite astonishing to see that this was always there and she wrote such beautiful landscape poems as as an adolescent and uh and i always thought that those poems were they were about emotional truths you know but she but they were filtered through landscapes you know moons and trees and storms and and this sort of thing and uh and you see a lot of that again in her later poems moons and and tree, the moon and the yew tree, elm, um, edge, a lot, again, a lot of these almost talismanic images reappear, but, but the voice is so much more controlled by the time she writes the aerial poems. Um, and, and the voice is, it just has an authority that, that she didn't have maybe earlier. And, and so to watch her voice kind of take on, I think that, that tone of authority and kind of absolute belief in itself, <laughs> the steadfastness. Um, that was that was sort of thrilling, yeah, to go through the manuscripts like in, in a kind of archaeological way and kind of watch that progression. But but the thing I, I wanted to also kind of challenge the uh, this this dominant narrative of, of Plath the confessionalist. Um, the, I, I do think she is a quote-unquote confessional poet in in some ways, absolutely. But I think that label put her in a box, and she's so much more than that. You know, she's she is a surrealist um, of the highest order in a sense. She she was so inspired by surrealist art. Um, so many of these poems that that are taught and read as quote-unquote confessional are just full of literary allusions to other authors. And you don't necessarily realize it. And the, the example that I give in my book uh, is Edge, her late poem Edge, which is probably the last poem she wrote. She wrote it in February 1963, um, you know, a few days before her suicide, about a week before her suicide. And it's always, it's, I shouldn't say always, it's often read as a posthumous suicide note. And in my book, I say, okay, yes, this seems, it seems like Plath is writing about her own suicide and, um, and it seems very confessional, but in fact, she's riffing off uh, poems by Yeats, by Sarah Teasdale, by D.H. Lawrence, by William Shakespeare. And you can go into the lines and just like pull out these literary illusions. <laughs> and it just complicates that idea that she's just writing this creed accord, you know, this uh, impulsive, <laughs> straight from the straight from the heart confession and so I anyway I just wanted to challenge that a bit no absolutely and I think like the idea that these voices 
aren't controlled, you know, like this is an affectation that they, the authors are very aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. And the bell jar is a great example of that too, because again, it almost seems like a Ramana Clough, but <laughs> again, there are so many literary allusions in that novel to James Joyce, to T.S. Eliot, to D.H. Lawrence. Um, it's, I think the novel is, a, is an ironic working of James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist of Young Man. And it's a very political novel. It's about the Cold War. The first sentence mentions the execution of the Rosenbergs. I mean, this is like, this is such a political novel. The, the politics are hiding in plain sight. Um, but it's but it's so often taught as a, a breakdown novel or a recovery narrative, and which it is those things, but it's more than that, right? So I just I just want to expand our notions of of what you know a Sylvia Plath novel is or what a Sylvia Plath poem is. I don't I don't want to tell people oh she's she's absolutely not that. Right. But but she's just she's more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with being confessional. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's just yeah. there's something wrong with with talking about it reductively. Exactly. And I think that the confessional label can be particularly dangerous for women writers with mental illness, especially Plath and Anne Sexton, because I think it, it kind of emphasizes the, the pathology. And it's it's hard to untangle all of it because it all sort of started in Robert Lowell's classroom. <laughs> Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton were Robert Lowell's students in 1959. And that, that, that seminar in Boston was sort of you know, often cited as the kind of birthplace of confessional poetry. And, and Lowell had been in mental institutions and Lowell had suffered from breakdowns. And he was very courageous to write about those things at a time when that was considered taboo. And Plath and Sexton, in a way, I think he gave them permission to write about their own experiences with mental illness. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that 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 is in any way, um, you know, something that that we shouldn't applaud in their work. But but again, I just yeah, the confessional label, if it's, it it can be reductive. It can limit the way that we approach the, the poems. Right. That's all right. I'm yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another thing that I was really curious about kind of on the flip side of, you know, watching kind of looking at the, um, the kind of whole continuum of her work is just purely the experience of seeing drafts that are unpublished or unfinished, um, which feels um, just like such an intensely private creative moment. And I'm just really curious about, like there is, I mean, you know, obviously all of this is, as you say, archeology, span I think that's a really good term for it, but, but there's something that's like slightly more voyeuristic about like the unfinished pieces. Um, so I'm just curious about like the experience, your experience of just engaging with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there there are certain poems that still haven't been published. I mean, most of her juvenilia has not been published. I, I think that's going to change. Uh, currently, there is a new edition of Plath's poems, which is being edited um, by two phenomenal Plath scholars, Karen Kukiel and Amanda Golden. So that's that will come out in a few years, and that will contain a lot more of these unpublished poems. Um, so everyone should be very excited about that. Um, but yeah, I think that, that some of the poems, for me, there was one called I Am an American. And that, that was such a political poem. She writes, uh, this, I think she wrote it in 1952. So again, right, at, right in the height of the McCarthy witch hunt and 
Cold War, and she's just she takes America to task. You know, she says something like, um, "We all live by the the Bendex, the Buick, and the batting average," and 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 she talks about xenophobia and American consumerism in this poem. And so, you know, I th- I think that was a finished poem. It wasn't unfinished, but it just it just never made its way into a collection. So there were poems like that that I would read, and I thought, wait a minute, this isn't, <laughs> I've never seen this before, and there was another one called, um, I think it was called Home Thoughts from Abroad, and it was written from a young woman's perspective in London, a young mother who was just out walking her baby, and she, she um, the speaker reminisces and misses America very much in that poem, and, and uh, kind of thinks about home and, and exile and all these really complicated emotions, and that was, a, that was also never published, and so it just it just presented, I think, a different side of Plath that um, most of us don't get to see. So I'm really I'm really excited that poems like that will be featured in the the new edition. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's definitely very exciting news. And I I would love to talk a little bit about your process with. Um, I mean, frankly, just logistically <laughs> somewhat yeah. as well, <laughs> yeah. you know, but also just yeah. when, you know, well, let's start, let's start at a, at a certain, at, <laughs> at a point instead of me just talking. Um, do you write and research simultaneously or do you feel like you do, there's a research phase and then you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, it's, it's sort of hard to know because for this biography, I had, I felt like I already had done so much research because I had written a book on Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes and their poetic relationship. So I had this critical foundation. I'd already spent, you know, five years reading all the Plath and Hughes scholarship. So I, I, I did write as I researched in this book. I, I did, and I started at the beginning. <laughs> I didn't do any fancy chronological footwork. I, I just, I started my. The first chapter was the genealogy, and um, and I I wanted to take a chronological approach because I just felt like that was that would be the best way for me to understand how she grew um, as a person and as a writer. Um, but yeah, I mean, for this next book I'm working on, I I'm re- I'm doing more research. Uh, I'm kind of dividing up the research and the writing more. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, um, but I know a lot of people can't, they really don't enjoy writing as they research, but that that was absolutely my method when I was writing Red Comet. Right, right. Um, I probably, I would write something every day. It was, it would be very rare that I would just spend a day reading stuff, you know? Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I would I would always try to get something on the page, even if you know, the next day I erased it all. But it just helped me keep my momentum to to have this feeling of of okay today I wrote something <laughs> right right um, just kind of keeping myself going a little bit and I I assume that that you had a pretty good sense at the outset that it would be a lengthy book I did my <laughs> I, I thought it would be five hundred to six hundred pages uh-huh, uh-huh. uh huh and uh, and it was double that and uh, I mean I cut. 300 pages myself before I even sent it to my editor in January of 2020. And then she helped me cut more, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what happened really. I mean, there was a certain point where I just stopped looking at the word count because it would just fill me with 
anxiety and shame and shame. You were ashamed of of writing so much? Yes, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I I just kept, you know, it it made me so, um, yeah, anxious and and worried because I knew I was writing a much longer book than I'd my contract called for and I was afraid they were going to make me cut it in half. And um, so, so yeah, the, the last few years were, were a lot of anxiety. But on the other hand, I just felt like once you start writing in a granular way, it's really hard to change that. And, and I guess I just, I just took this stance of, well, nobody has gone into this much detail about her ever. And, and we don't have the, the big biography. And, and this is my contribution, you know, this mm-hmm. is, yeah. and, and I, I love short biographies. There's nothing wrong with a 200 page biography, but I just, you know, that was missing for Platt. And I just decided this is what I'm going to do. Go big or go home, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you keep yourself organized? How do you keep the documents and the research and, and your, your drafts organized? Yeah, I, I spent a long time just <laughs> taking photos at all of these archives um, at the very beginning of the project. So, you know, I w- went to the Lilly Library in Indiana, which has uh, mo- probably most of her um, material. Lily and Smith have the most, but I would just stand there eight hours a day with a camera, click, 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 you know, I'd have wrist, wrist cramps at the end of the day. So I would uh, take everything home uh, to, <laughs> to my study I, of course, I wanted to read these documents in the archive. I wanted so badly to just sit down and, but I knew that I didn't have the time to do that because I had two small children at home and going to archives is expensive and um, arranging childcare is difficult. And so I just didn't have the luxury of being able to sit in an archive for six months, which which I did before I had kids. Like before I had kids, I could just, <laughs> I could spend hours, but it just, the, the, the equation changed, right, when you have kids at home. So, uh, but I just, everything was on, you know, iPhoto. And I just kind of, nothing fancy, just organized all the, the letters into chronological sections and, and uh, manuscripts and documents. I mean, I, I basically copied the archives' um, own categories. So I would just read through the original letters um, on my computer at as I was trying to write, and and so many of them had not been published at that point. I mean, now all of all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters were published in 2018, but I started this in like 2011. Did you have any struggles with you know we talked about Sylvia Plath herself kind of being able to claim her own authority? Like, was was claiming authority over this narrative something that you struggled with? No, I. I don't, I, that is not something that I struggled with, strangely. That's wonderful. Because, yeah, no, I I think because I was just, it came from a, a place of anger initially, this whole project, um, because I was, I was angry about the way she'd been pathologized, and I felt it was sexist. And so that was kind of just this fire that propelled me and um, and it was it was sort of this mission. It was mission driven in that sense. I guess I didn't have those kinds of struggles. And I, and I didn't, people ask me like, oh, did you dream about Sylvia Plath all the time? And how did you separate your life from hers? And, and I actually did not have that problem either. I think I was just so busy <laughs> trying to 
you know, I'm, I'm a professor as well, like trying to maintain my academic life and my students and my children. And it was just like, I didn't have time <laughs> to, to ruminate. You know, once um, the kids came home from school, it was like, okay, right, right. dinner, bath time. <laughs> just, right. just um, in a way that saved me because the, it was such a huge distraction from a really emotionally difficult subject that I was immersed in for six hours a day. Yeah. But that's kind of one of the wonderful things about parenthood, right? <laughs> yeah. No, a, a, a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> It's, I think it's a very, you know, it's a, it's very much a, a working writer kind of mentality. Yes, and, yes. and I, you turn, you turn it off. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I don't have kids, but I do have a day job. And sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm so in this world in the morning when I'm writing. And then I don't think about it. Yeah for the rest of the day. And sometimes that feels very strange, but, but I like your take on it too, that there is this sort of, well, for, I mean, we always need distance from the thing. We and, do. We do. Um, and especially something that's really a tragic right. story on many levels. Of course. Yeah. And I, I, protect, I tried to kind of protect myself in a way from just, you know, becoming too emotionally invested and, and paralyzed in a, in a sense by the tragedy of the story. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on now? I know it's a, it's also involves Plath, right, and several other writers. Yes, I am about 100 pages into a group biography of Plath, Anne Sexton, Adrian Rich, and Maxine Cuman in Boston in the 1950s and, and 60s. And so they, they all knew each other, some more than others, uh, but the book is is about kind of their their struggles and their story as they try to become great writers great poets in boston in the 50s and this again in this world that that wanted them to to be mothers and housewives and and kind of how they they inspired each other well i will i will eat that up for sure <laughs> i'm going to stick to my word limit this time <laughs> so this this will be a 300 page book i am determined i am determined to stick to my my poor editor i mean god love her <laughs> Um, I was really curious, this came up on the working podcast and I thought it was so, such a smart question because I, I also had an answer to this. Um, but you were asked, you know, what, or, or I'm not even sure if he asked you, I can't remember cause I can't remember what you said. So maybe, maybe I'm misremembering this already, but, um, the idea of like just this one detail that, that, that stuck out and for, for Roman Alam, it was, um, the cherries and the peach and the cherries and the grapes that she's eating at the beach. And, and I very much have a detail that stood out for me and, and I'll tell you, but first I want to know if, if there's a detail that, that really kind of stands furthest out for you. You know, it's, <laughs> I think it might've been the cherries on the beach too, because, but that there's partly, um, I, I'm from Cape Cod. I, I love to be on Cape Cod. Um, I spend as much time as possible there. So all of those beach scenes when she was on the Cape, I'm, I'm on Cape Cod right now. Um, the beach scenes really affected me because I just have <laughs> been to those beaches and, and when she had the cherries and she was opening the magazine and reading her story by herself on the beach with you know with her fruit <laughs> and just having this moment of pure you know unapologetic admiration for her achievement like I, I just loved that whole scene yeah 
No, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful image. Uh, mine was, and I, and I hesitate, I, I want to preface, you know, we've talked a lot about not reducing. And so I don't want to, this is a semi-dramatic detail. So I don't want to take it. I don't want to, I don't, I'm not by any means saying this is the only thing I took out of this book. <laughs> um, but I was so mesmerized by this, this visual, this mental image of her knocking on her neighbor's door this is towards the end of her life and he he answers and they chat about something and he goes back inside and then like 20 minutes later he opens the door again and she's just still standing in the hallway and i was just like when i like i'm gonna steal that at some point and you'll just know that that's that's where i got it but like i was just like that's like i mean haunting feels like such a cheap word for it but it, it just really was so stirring to me and so there there it's there's so much emotional resonance there that there's so many layers there i think to that yeah yeah that no i i know exactly i, I feel the same way about that moment and what what was she thinking and what was happening and and then that i think those final maybe two or three chapters i used a lot more white space between paragraphs mm. um because I just felt like I needed, it was so intense. Um, I needed to give the reader, I needed to give them space to kind of process the things that were happening. And uh, so, yeah, you'll notice that there is more white space between paragraphs in those last couple chapters and more section breaks and things like that. Yeah, you're right. I'm flipping through it right now. That's, that's wonderful. That's really, really smart. And I, I didn't, I just, it kind of happened that way, but I think I also needed <laughs> to sort of, Set it, set it down, and then, I don't know, but... Yeah. Um, well, I want to wrap up uh, our convo with a question that I always like to ask everybody at the end of our um, conversations, which is, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Uh, I, feel, I feel really good about Red Comet. Um, I, that, that is creative satisfaction for me. I, I feel like it's, it's achieved what I wanted it to achieve, which is to enlarge people's perception about Sylvia Plath, change their sense of who she was. She wasn't just this writer who wrote poems about death and suicide. She's one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. And she, I think she changed English poetry. Um, she changed the style and substance. And, and if, if, if we're taking Sylvia Plath more seriously, then, then that's um, that's deeply satisfying for me as a literary critic and biographer. So, so yeah, I'm 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 creatively satisfied <laughs> at, at the moment. I'm, um, in a, in a, a year or so, I'll I'll really want to start um, you know, get finish my next book. But right now, I'm I'm, I'm good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to read this book, um, and I'm really excited for for what you're working on next. Great, thank you. And I should add that Red Comet comes out in paperback on September 21st. It will be more affordable, <laughs> <laughs> but still pretty heavy. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.